Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 195. Today's episode is all about how the only way out is through it. The medicine doesn't solve your problems for you. You learn by doing. You have to go through this experience. The only way you can actually learn is by going through the experience. And so I didn't get many insights on my last ceremony because it was like, stop coming here, stop coming to the medicine. We're not going to solve all your problems. You have all the tools, you have all the resources. It literally was like, go back and your meditation practice, go back to your yoga practice, go back to your really clean eating, make sure you're getting eight hours of sleep, make sure you're staying hydrated, make sure you don't have anyone in your life that's stealing energy from you, right? But it doesn't mean you're not going to feel grief, doesn't mean you're not going to feel sadness, doesn't mean you're not going to feel frustrated, but you now have the tools to maneuver those experiences. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hello, my love. If you have not yet subscribed, please hit that cute little button. Subscribing, sharing, and five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts are a really great way to give back if you find this show helpful. They help the show climb the charts, which helps more people find it and helps me get even better guests for you. Today, I'm sharing a review from Orange Basque, who says, so grateful, I don't even know where to begin. I found this podcast more than a few months ago and I've been listening to it every single day. I never miss a day of listening to what an amazing topic Melissa has to share. Every one of her episodes teaches me something new and I love her show so much that I go back and listen to the ones that I've already listened to. I'm so grateful to have found her podcast and every day I'm happy because of it. This review meant so much to me. I'm so grateful to hear the impact that Mind Love has on you guys because I know it has an impact on me. So thank you so much for taking the time to leave this review. And now let's get to it. Back in college, I was going through a really hard time and a friend of mine gave me a card that said the good old phrase, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. My first thought was, oh my gosh, this is so sweet that you'd think of me and give me a card. And my next thought was, shut the hell up. You've never had lemons like these. You don't know my lemons. But whatever, message received, everyone wanted me to put on a happy face. That's what I got from the card. To me, it meant no matter what life throws at you, you need to spin it into a positive. So I started trying to just rise above everything, to smile anyways, to bury what I was really feeling about the death of my dad, my sexual assault, the loss of a friend to suicide, my spiraling bulimia. Just put on a happy face. Don't show people what you're really going through. No one wants the sour, they only want the sweet. Looking back, I don't think I interpreted the phrase in any helpful way. When life gives you lemons, you don't just put them in the back of the pantry so you don't have to see the lemons. Those lemons will make themselves known. They will rot, they'll start to mold, attract creatures that feed off the bacteria. Just like burying my pain way back in my mind didn't make it go away, it was still there, festering, growing, attracting things and people that would feed off of it. 
And just like if the lemons were left for years in the back of a pantry, once you finally do realize, oh, hey, maybe I should clean this shit up, that cleanup process is going to be intense. I'm talking rubber gloves, disinfecting sprays, sponges, scrapers. Hell, you might even need a new pantry because the acid might just eat through the wood. I don't know. So we make the lemonade or the lemon bars or the lemon and cayenne wellness shot or whatever you're into. You're not pretending the lemons aren't there. You're not pretending they aren't sour. You are working with the lemon to find balance, to make it palatable, or even make it something rewarding and refreshing. In the same way, we work with the pain. We find balance. We ask ourselves, what do we need in this moment to make our lived experience have a deeper meaning? And there's not just one way to transform your pain or to explore it. Just like there's a thousand lemon recipes, there are so many ways to move with your own pain, to uncover the stories that we've created, to move through them, to help transform them into something better than we started with. I have tried a lot of these modalities from the unhealthy, like losing myself and other people, relationships, alcohol, drugs, eating disorders, to the healthy, yoga, sound baths, ecstatic dance, meditation, cryotherapy, like all the things. But it wasn't until I stopped trying to find a way around it or a quick fix and I started looking inside myself while I was right smack in the middle of the pain that things started to shift. I still use and love so many of the tools that I've found over the years, but my approach is different. The tool will not fix me by itself, but it'll help me. It'll show me things about myself, but then the work is mine. And I know that I'm not alone because I have spoken to so many of you who have different versions of the same story, just like our guest today, who I swear somehow has the male Mormon millionaire version of mine, if that's even possible. Our guest is Doug Cartwright. He's a speaker, author, and CEO and founder of The Daily Shifts, an online company dedicated to inspiring lasting transformation of the mind, body, and soul. And three key things we will learn today are the dangers of burying our pain, how to get clear on the stories that unconsciously drive our lives and how psychedelics may help, and how to first align yourself so you can get to the root of your healing. But before we dive in, I want to invite you to wake up to the morning mind love. Every weekday morning, you get a little inspiration just to set the tone for your day, to give you something positive to focus on. Think of it like a little love letter from your higher self. Plus, when you sign up, you get two free gifts, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of self-reflective journaling prompts to help you grow. And it's all completely free. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up. And now let's welcome Doug Cartwright to the show. Thanks for having me. So give us a little background on you. I'm actually really excited to dive into your story because somehow our lives are completely different, but exactly the same. (laughs) Funny how that usually works, right? Yeah. So I'm currently the founder and CEO of The Daily Shifts, but I didn't quite get started that way as an entrepreneur. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and grew up on the east side, so like upper middle class, white, conservative Mormon. And was very much in like this bubble in a sense. And I didn't know, when you're in a bubble, you don't know you're in a bubble. All of my neighbors went to the same church, we went to the same school, we're into the same things, you know, we're the same religion. And so it was kind of like this really, you're kind of told growing up, and where I lived at least, of what you were supposed to do in life. Like it was all laid out for you, especially in the more religion, you're kind of talking 
is where you were before you were born. This is the purpose of life. And while you're on life, this is what you do. You go to college, you get a good job, you go on a LDS service mission to spread the gospel for two years. Then you get married to a beautiful young lady. Then you have a bunch of kids and you stay Mormon. And then at the end of the, the end of your life, you get to live in the highest kingdom with God. So your, your whole life is laid out for you and kind of you're told what you're supposed to do. So I very much, most of my young life, really obeyed that transition and that uh, blueprint in a sense. And I was captain of my high school football team and I was student body vice president. I was very much like had this, I don't want to say chip on my shoulder, but almost like this badge of honor that I was proud, that my community was proud of me. And so kind of up until that point, my life was really good, you know, and lived in a loving household. And I'm very lucky to have loving parents. But when things started to change and eventually went, took my whole life down a completely different direction. But the first tipping point was when you are 18 years old in the Mormon church, you are called to go on a service mission. And it's almost like this coming of age moment where the leadership of the church feels inspired, they say, to call you to somewhere in the world. And for two years, you go to a different part of the world and you might have to learn a new language. And all you do for two years is trying to convert people to the Mormon faith. So you could go add friends, go to Samoa and Russia. And I got called to New Zealand, which I was really grateful for. New Zealand was super cool. But while you're there, it's like, you don't watch TV. You don't listen to music. You don't have a phone. All you do sun up to sundown is missionary work. And in accordance to that call, the church has a standard of living you're supposed to obey to. So almost like a purity in a sense. So, you know, you're not supposed to watch like rated R movies before you go. You're not supposed to know for sure no drinking, for sure no girls, stuff like that, intimacy, just to make sure your soul in a sense is pure and ready to spread the gospel, you know. And I had a girlfriend before I left. And so two nights before I actually was supposed to leave to New Zealand, we were together and we were intimate and we broke the rules. And I had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt about it. And in my head, I'm thinking like, there's no way I can confess now and derail my mission a couple of months because like I've already had my farewell party. I've already said goodbye to everyone. It'd be so embarrassing. So I hid it and I swept it under the rug, the shame and the guilt of, you know, being unworthy and then still went out on my service mission and lied, lied about my eligibility in a sense. And Nine months into my mission, that guilt and shame had built up so much, and I felt so bad that I had lied to God that I finally confessed to my leaders in my mission, and I didn't think I'd get home, but they actually sent me out. I got kicked off my mission, and I came home at that point, and that was kind of the first time in my life where I had not been a reputable servant of my community. It was almost like I almost took on like this villain role. And that was kind of the first moment in my life where it's like, oh, wait, I'm not doing everything I'm supposed to, like I've been laid out my whole life. And that's kind of when the shame and guilt started to fall in. The reason I said earlier that we have completely different, but somehow exactly the same lives is I was raised really Christian and Mm. I was highly involved in the church, like five days a week, all day Sunday, all day Wednesday after school. And One of the things was choir, and we actually would go around the East Coast on a bus every year and sing at different homeless shelters and churches. And when I was 15, I was actually sexually assaulted. And Mm -hmm. I had told 
a couple people, but at the time, I didn't understand that I was sexually assaulted. I had been drinking. I woke up. I knew that something happened to me, and I thought it was my fault. Like, I didn't realize, oh, you're passed out. Somebody took advantage of you. That actually yeah. took me until the Me Too movement to look back and process. Mm. Well, mm. people at the church found out, and I got my solos taken away. I was basically on this trip with a bunch of church members, and then I all of a sudden felt shunned. I remember calling my mom from Canada, crying, asking her if she'd fly me home. And it was really a big, pivotal moment in my life where, you know, I had already had questions that I felt like I was pushing down or I was pushing aside, even though I felt like there were some inconsistencies or things that just didn't align with what I believed. But it was after that, that another seed was planted. And I'm just like, what am I doing this for? This isn't compassion. This isn't love. Like, why do I feel so off? And I just turned away from it completely. But I'm wondering from that point, how did it shift? Did you start to try harder to get in the good graces of your church members? Or were you just like, screw this, let me try something else? Yeah. So it eventually, it never got to like a screw this, but initially for sure, you're right. Like right off the gate, it was like, okay, now I need to prove myself back. Let me try and regain their trust or their support. And, and support's the wrong word. Cause I always feel like, even though I did have shame and guilt come home, I did feel supported, even though it was like, yeah, we'll help you. But it was almost like you screwed up, but like kind of like this underlying, you know, shame on you. But there was people that absolutely gave me unconditional love and support. So I don't want to say that word, but, um, but yeah, so there was like this initial pry and and try to like earn my worth back and just over time like things kept happening i didn't quite get back to the standard of living and it didn't really resonate with me and so i was kind of like in this gray area for a couple of years of kind of like yeah so i never actually went back out because initially when i got home it was like okay if you come home and you have six months of perfect behavior we'll send you back out and you can go finish and so that was kind of like the goal when I first got home. It's like, I'm going to go back and I'll prove, you know, I'll get it back. But I never did that. I never made it back because, you know, I'd go a couple months and I'd slip up. The pivotal moment was like when I was like, okay, you know, I'm going to do it this time. Maybe nine months after I'd been home, my father got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. And that was devastating because it was like, oh no, like stage four colon cancer in a way is basically a death sentence. It's like, it's less than 1% turn it around from there. And so that's when I started to kind of reevaluate my life. I'm like, okay, you know, maybe the mission isn't for me. I would rather be home and spend this last quality time with my dad than try and go back out on my mission and deal with that. And so, and at that point too, what's really interesting is in that community, I feel like not just in Utah, but I think as a whole is, is where we are, like men aren't taught how to deal with their emotions, right? So when your dad's dying, my initial thought was like, okay, now I need to man up and be strong for my mom and be strong for my community and like not show this emotion. And I'll never forget. So, you know, I was really lucky. I got to spend one good year with my dad and have really beautiful moments with him. But I'll never forget. It was maybe two nights before he passed away. My mom and I were sitting at the stairs by the base of their door. My dad was, I mean, he was gone and she put her arm around me. And I remember feeling this emotion inside of me, like this waterfall of just intense sadness and grief and overwhelm. And it was like this firework of explosion of just grief and sadness. And I started sobbing really, really intently as my mom had her arm around me and it lasted for maybe three or four seconds. And then I remember my thought was like, don't cry. Don't be weak. Don't be weak. And so I cut it off. I was like, nope. And I just pushed it all back down and almost just cut the valve off. And 
just remember thinking, I have a lot of emotions going on. I didn't know how to express them. I didn't know how to say them. And after that, I remember my best friend, Scotty, called me. And he was like, dude, how are you doing? Like, tell me really what's going on. And I was just like, I'm good. And I got off the phone with him. And I remember thinking, like, I'm not good. And I don't know how to say that I'm not good. And so that was really, at that point, kind of festering a lot of emotions inside of me. And I didn't know how to express them. And it kind of just is when the buildup really started to happen. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. So a few years after the story I told you, my dad was diagnosed with stage four lymphoma. I had just gotten to college a month before when I found this out. So then my first year of college, I was flying back to see him. And then he died about one year after his diagnosis. And I went through the same thing for different reasons. I wasn't trying to man up, but I was in college and to show vulnerability and be crying when I'm making all these new friends. And I was known Mm. as the fun one. So I hid everything as well. I just kind of shoved it down. And it was easier for me at the time than it would have been a year before because I wasn't used to seeing my dad very often because I was at college. So it was like over the course of the next year, it was like layers and layers of accepting what had really happened and kind of feeling it. And for me, the more I actually hindered my own emotions, the more it seeped out in other ways. So I ended up drinking all the time, doing party drugs all the time. I developed bulimia. So for me, Mm. it was manifesting itself in self-sabotage before I started doing the work and following so many of the things that you ended up following. So how was that transition for you with hiding those emotions to the point that you started just seeking something that was going to improve your life? Yeah. So what I ended up doing, and yeah, I deeply resonate with your message. And it's interesting just to go back on your story. When did you become aware that your drug use and your eating disorder and whatnot was tied to your dad's death? How did you piece that together? It was years later when I was reflecting back on my life because my self-sabotage went far. I ended up in a 
really bad relationship with arguably a sociopath who was robbing houses. And I ended up getting arrested for his crimes before I knew he was doing any of this while I was in the car with him. So it was this whole long saga that takes like a good 25 minutes to really unravel. But I was feeling like my whole life was ruined. Like, why didn't I have... I knew he was cheating on me a year before. Why did it take this moment for me to realize I need to separate? And why am I still talking to him now that he's in rehab and I'm getting in trouble? Like so many things where I was just like making decisions and I could feel my personality splitting almost. And I don't know if it was like a defense mechanism, but I remember being on the phone with him, making a decision and saying yes to meet up with him at some point. And like this voice in my head was like, what are you doing? Stop this. Like, why are you staying connected to this person who's essentially ruining your life? And so I finally moved to LA to get away from him and going to yoga and hearing I was going to yoga and like leaving before Shavasana, which only a a crazy person would do (laughs) because I was just so stimulated all the time. And I was just like here for the workout. But then slowly but surely the little lessons started to penetrate and I started to read books. And it was really through probably like my fifth self-help book that I started to be like, that, that was tied to this. And I remember the first time I realized it might be like, oh, I hearing that bulimia is a way that people regain control over their lives. I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds good on paper, but was that really the thing? And so I had to go through like layers of excuses. And once those started shedding and I stopped justifying like, and it wasn't like I was justifying the behavior, but I had an unwillingness to believe that I had less control than I wanted to think I did. So Mm. I was like, Oh yeah, that was how I regained control, sort of. I was controlling what my body looked like. That's it. I didn't really realize it was emotionally tied. So it took me a while. But now, thankfully, I'm able to put those things together in real time almost (laughs) because of the work that I've done. But that first time, I think the linkages are so much harder to see. Yeah, I mean, I totally resonate with that because when I was going through my trauma of losing my dad and kind of being this outcast of the church— the way I felt it is I actually found a, I got recruited to work in a sales shop that had uncapped commission. It was a hundred percent commission job and it was a door to door sales job. And I remember thinking like, wow, I can control how much I make. And so instead of dealing with the trauma of my dad dying and leaving the church, I became 100% consumed and obsessed with leadership and sales and recruiting. And I literally dug my head into the sand and turned it off for four or five years. And what happened is I actually became really, really good at it, like incredibly good at it. And, you know, in my early 20s, I started making a ton of money. And by the time I was 24, I made a million bucks and was spending it faster than you could think, trying to fill this void of whatnot. Because what really happened is I realized like, okay, if I am not worthy in my real community anymore because I've screwed up in my church and my dad's gone and I'm missing that void, how can I earn their trust back? It's like, okay, in our society, making money is looked highly upon and it's kind of like this crown. And so it's like, oh, I'll try and earn everyone's trust back this way. And so I started making all this money and really to fill this deep void within me, I started spending it and I wanted you to know how much money I had. So I love sports. So I'm going to the Super Bowl front row. I'm going to the NBA finals. I'm going to the World Series. I'm going to the College Football Championship. I buy the new $120,000 Mercedes and I'm posting about it. And I'm, you know, living this very lavish lifestyle of trying to get people attention and trying to get them to notice me. And really, where it goes even deeper, once I started getting into the personal development world, where it really ties to as well is one of the first stories I ever told myself 
when I was in second grade was that I was the fat kid. And I got made fun of in second grade and someone called me fat and I was overweight. I definitely was. And I believed this story at such a young age. And because I believed I was a fat kid, I believed that A, something was wrong with me, right? And that I was unlovable. And so when I would first meet someone, I can't hide my physical body. And so I already know that you can tell something's wrong with me because I'm overweight. And so now I have to prove to you and overcompensate why you should see me as valuable, right? And so especially when you get into dating where it gets really intense, I know I'm already starting down a notch. Like I have to overcompensate right off the get go because I'm not attractive. And so all of a sudden I start making this money. I have this asset. I don't feel like I'm enough. I don't feel like I belong in my community trying to find a girl to fill this void. And so I'd be on like a dating app when I'm 25, I'd match with a girl. I'd pick her up in my hundred thousand dollar Mercedes. This is a first date, by the way. I don't know her. We go to Roos Chris, a couple hundred dollar dinner, and then we're, I'll buy floor seats for us at the Utah Jazz game. And I'd be like four or $5,000 on our first date. It was just stupid, just crazy. And if we got to a second or a third date, it's like, hey, let's fly to Disneyland for the day. I'll take care of the flights and the whole thing. And it was just throwing money at him like crazy. Just all I'm really screaming is this, this really sad boy deep down inside of me that has lost his dad, has lost his reputability in his community and like believes he's unworthy and unlovable because he's a fat kid. And so I tried to fill that void with money and just went into even like a deeper death spiral. Oh my gosh, you sound like so many people I dated in my 20s. <laughs> but I was doing the exact same thing only with the value that I thought that I had. So I even had the same story right after that first sexual assault, I ended up gaining a bunch of weight, which arguably could have been my body's way of protecting itself, like an extra layer. I've read all sorts of things about that. But I ended up, like I said, trying to control what I looked like. Like that's the value that the woman brings, you know? You see the hot women on the millionaire's arms. And so I dropped down to like 92 pounds. I ended up getting breast Mm. implants. I had like eyelash extensions, going tanning, perfect highlights, spending all this money on clothes. Now I'm like always in leggings and never wear makeup. It's just such a, a stark contrast. But it was interesting though, because even when I got to that, I like got to this point, I needed the validation of somebody else accepting me as that. Mm. And so I think that's why that one really unhealthy relationship was so important to me. Because when I met him the first four months, I thought it was too good to be true, which it was because he was doing that same stuff, like showering me with money. Little did I know he was literally stealing it from other people and then giving it to me. And so it was just a whole mind warp of like trying to find my innate value with all the wrong ways, just by packing it on the outside and wondering why every time I got to this new thing, it almost felt emptier because I was expecting fulfillment there and it wasn't there. And I'm like, if it's not there, then where is it? And I went on a sort of similar journey. And one thing that I find interesting is in your book, you talked about how you started trying all these things like biohacking and cryotherapy, crystals, silent retreats, Wim Hof yoga. And I was just literally reading through them. I'm like, check, (laughs) check, check. I did all that. And It's interesting because when I first started going through all those things, they were all helpful. Like they were all helpful. They all helped me find something. But I think I was trying to find the thing in each of them. And I'm like, okay, maybe this is the thing that's I'm going to like reach enlightenment or all my problems are going to be gone because of this thing that I'm being promised and this thing. And looking back, it was like each one had a new layer or maybe a self-realization to find. But ultimately, it was still, I think, 
I was putting too much hope in that this was a solution rather than this was a tool or this was where I was going to find myself rather than this is just a tool to help you understand yourself better. So I'm curious, when did you start seeking all these healing modalities and where did you end up from there? Yeah, great question. And it's so funny. I resonate so much with what you said about like, is this the one? Like, is this going to be the thing that finally cures it all? But what happened for me, I kind of felt to this place. It wasn't very much like intentional search from the get-go. I didn't build it up. And it happened very, very quickly. So I was very lost in my life, very unfulfilled, very confused. And I was kind of had plateaued at my job and was ready to leave, was very unfulfilling, wasn't in the best physical health, wasn't really in the church. I was in like the ultimate gray area. And I came across this book called Stealing Fire. And it talks about flow states, right? How to get in the zone, whether you're an artist or a musician or an athlete, when you're just in the zone, everything comes so easy. And you're just like, you're not really thinking you're just doing. So in my head, I'm thinking like, oh, that'd be great for my business, right? I could become the best salesman, the best leader, the best recruiter, the best trainer. And just going through it, it's going through really well. And then all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, starts talking about psychedelics. And at this point, growing up Mormon, you know, conservative Utah, it's you're taught that every drug is basically methamphetamine. And if you do it one time, you'll die and be homeless and on the streets. And, you know, so it's like, <laughs> don't ever do anything one time. And they weren't ever classified. And there's this big blanket on drugs that everything is really, really bad. But it breaks down, pull, kind of pulls out the psychedelics section and really breaks it down and how there's so many incredible benefits for in regards to addiction and depression and creativity and reading this book with like my jaw literally drops and I'm like, what, what in the hell? And what really stuck to me was the quote from Steve Jobs. And so it's like, Hey, here's Steve Jobs, literally someone who absolutely changed the direction of the world in the most positive way, an absolute innovator, creative entrepreneur. And his quote is, you know, doing LSD was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I remember the thought in my head was like, there's something here. There's something going on here. So not even two weeks later after I read this, I'm at a party and someone offers me a psychedelic compound. And I've never been off of that in my entire life. And I remember thinking, this is a sign. Like, I have to try this. I just have to see what's in this space. It's not for me. Cool. I'll end it. Wrap up. I'm over. But like, I got to just peek behind the curtain. And so... On June 10th, 2017, and I tell the whole story in my book with all the crazy twists and turns and synchronicities. It was really intense. But for the sake of time, I had this experience and it was so profound. It completely shattered my constructs of reality. And it was so intense and left me really questioning everything. And it opened up. It was almost like it showed me the path, a secret door in my mind that was like, hey, this is where you now your journey begins. Now there's another road for you to go down. And so because that initial experience was so eye-opening to me, that led me down the path. I'm like, okay, what else is here? So that's where I went into the cryo and the meditation and the yoga and the biohacking and working with the psychologist and doing, you know, eventually led me to doing, you know, ayahuasca with trained professional shamans from the Amazon and really doing a deep dive into this world of self-healing and therapy and really going do a journey of self-love. And while none of this, not one thing was like the ultimate answer, there was so many beautiful things. The biggest turning point was along this journey, I reconnected with a dear, dear friend of mine and we became romantic. 
And we had the most beautiful, soulful, cosmic, incredible, deep, heartfelt relationship. And at one point during our healing journeys together, we had like this breakthrough of like, oh my gosh, you're my person. I'm your person. You're my person. We love each other. Oh, I get it. When people say, when you know, you'll know. I'm like, oh, I get it now. And you can't ever get it until you get it. Like, oh, I found you. Like, we found each other. This is incredible and beautiful. You can be the mother of my children and we're going to have such a beautiful life. And then one day she broke up with me and dumped me. And it was so gut-wrenchingly devastating. And it didn't make any sense to me because I was like, do you not see just what happened this last little while? Like, do you not remember the connection? And I remember being so depressed. I had suicidal thoughts at one point. And I was walking through the woods one day And the biggest breakthrough after doing all of these different modalities is I realized I was like, wait, I don't love myself, right? I put all of my happiness into this girl's hands and she was in charge of my happiness and I outsourced all of my self-love to her. And I'm like, oh, I need to learn to love myself, right? That's the the true key here. And so I started this journey into self-love. And as you'll see in the book, you know, after doing all the psychedelics and whatnot, it was very, very powerful and helped me raise my self-awareness. I say, you know, true, true self-love is the absolute ultimate superpower you can have in this life. Do you think you would have made that realization or, or made that connection when that heartbreak happened if you hadn't had some of those psychedelic experiences? Probably not. I mean, it just opened up the door to so many new thought patterns you know, so it's kind of like it was giving me a lot of the puzzle pieces. You know, it was like, hey, there's this and there's this and there's this. And then that event of heartbreak actually put the pieces all together and I was able to see the larger map. And so without those experiences with psychedelics or with therapists or meditation, I wouldn't have had all the pieces together to get the big picture, I don't think. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back. No questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. 
It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The last time I did mushrooms, actually, I've had a number of psychedelic experiences, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, mushrooms is an easily accessible one for a lot of people. But it's interesting because until I did ayahuasca, I didn't have the same kinds of experiences in mushrooms. It's like mushrooms was kind of psychedelic opening, like it was a trip for sure. But it might have been my maturity level at the time. It might have been what I was currently seeking, like my intention in life was totally different than my intention now. And I do think your intention has something to do with it because the first time I did ayahuasca, that was a big part of it was setting your intention and journaling beforehand. And I didn't realize, I thought I could have one intention and that's all I'd have time for, but I didn't realize I would have like almost a Rolodex where I was just like zapping each thing. It was so fast. So what was your experience like when you had your first psychedelic experience what did you see or feel or how did that open up aspects of your mind for you yeah so the first experience i had at that party was very much like the takeaway was it peeled back the veil and just showed me there's a lot more and i had a couple of takeaways here and there not really about myself but more of just like it was more of a cosmic perspective of like hey what you think is reality is not reality and let's show you and i was like oh shit, everything I thought I knew is true is not true. And there's a whole nother world. And then I kind of closed the door. And so I was so like, oh my gosh. And so after that, that led me to my next experience is I did six grams of mushrooms with a blindfold, which I do not recommend doing for your first trip. It was very, it was a lot, it was (laughs) a lot, very deep. And so that first experience on mushrooms was a little bit about me, but I really mourned the loss of my father. Seven years later, I finally was able to process a lot of that trauma and just did a massive release and felt the grief and felt the loss. Then after that, that's when I did my first ayahuasca ceremony and I did three nights in a row. And ayahuasca is like a whole nother freaking level beast. So completely unexplainable and you can't get it until you get it. But first night of ayahuasca, absolutely 
destroyed me, just blew me up, relived a lot of my stories of I'm unlovable and re-dealt dealt with my fat kid stuff and dealt with a, not this last relationship, but the relationship I had before that, the loss of that and what was going on in that relationship and like really just ripping me apart. Um, it was really intense. The second night was the most beautiful, euphoric, indescribable, incredible night of my life where it showed me my highest potential and it kind of really sewed me back together and kind of showed me who I am. And and there was a moment, I want to share this with you because it's how I got the title of my book, but in that second night, it almost took my soul off of the planet Earth. And I was zooming, I was looking at planet Earth from a third eye perspective of like with no connection to being human. And just kind of like, this is what Earth is and this is what's, what's going on and the purpose of the experience of the evolution of your soul. And then I slowly started to be reborn back into my body. And I felt like I was in my body for the first time ever. And I remember laying down and I was looking at my hands and I would make a fist and I was like, holy shit, I just think and my hands close. Like it just does that. Like I have this incredible vessel. And then I like felt these immense feelings of joy and excitement. And it was like, I was looking at earth as if it was an amusement park. There's beaches and mountain ranges and animals and food and music and other people here. Like, holy shit, this is incredible. Like, and I kept thinking like, holy shit, like we're alive. Wait, this is what it feels like to be alive? Guys, holy shit, we're alive. And I was so pumped just to be human. And so I'm like, oh, and that's where the title of my book comes from. It's like, holy shit, we're alive. We get dropped down on this beautiful planet and have so many incredible opportunities and connections and food and music and art and literature and there's creators and there's friends and we can travel. But the reason we're not enjoying our lives is because we're stuck in a story of how we think life is supposed to be going. And it's not. Or we're stuck on a story of trauma, of why we're not good enough. And so we're clinging to that and we feel the loss of that. So that's why we're not enjoying our lives. And so that's the whole intention really with the book that I'm sharing You know, in my book, Holy Shit, We're Alive, is you know, once we can heal these stories, we can break through to another level and pierce the experience of life at such a deeper, richer level. And so that was kind of my second night. And then my third night was kind of like, as I've been rebuilt up, it was like some really incredible insights in your life. Like, for example, at the time I was like really addicted to college sports betting, college football betting. So it's like, hey, stop gambling. And another one was, you know, your body would do a lot better if you stopped eating meat. Not that like everyone needs to be vegetarian and don't preach it, but it's just like the way your body so it's like avoid meat. And so I cut meat out too and immediately lost like 25 pounds. Of so it was like a little bit, a couple of insights on the third night. And still to this day, that initial ceremony of those first two nights were by far the most profound, indescribable, influential nights of my entire life. And I share all the details in the book. It's such a well-written book too. And it's interesting how when the student is ready, the master appears. And the same thing happened with me with psychedelics. I remember somebody just saying to me, <laughs> I overheard them talking about this ayahuasca experience in LA. And I'm like, wait, you need to connect me with this. And she's like, when you're ready, the opportunity will open itself to you. Yeah. And I was like, that's the most annoying answer I've ever heard in my life. Give me this person's <laughs> phone number. <laughs> yeah. But I just like let it ride. And then I set this intention. I was like, I want to do this for my birthday this year. And it was a few months out. And then right around my birthday, all of a sudden, three opportunities opened themselves up to me. And I did two of them <laughs> back to back. Wow. And so it was exactly what I needed at the time, though. It was I had been doing so much work. And I think what I gained from that was that it wasn't ready immediately when I wanted it because I needed to start seeking in a healthier way. Like I needed to stop looking for everything to fix my problems and start realizing mm -hmm. that these are all just 
glimpses into myself, but I have to do the work. I'm here, the one that needs to love myself more. I need to accept myself. I need to stop living my life for everyone else's approval that doesn't even really care to approve of me. They're worried about getting their own approval. So yeah. yeah. And so once I started unraveling that though, somebody said ayahuasca is like a thousand years of therapy in one night. And it really was for me, the profoundness of it. And I could feel myself even in the beginning of that, like my old church beliefs, even though I hadn't been going to church for such a long time, it took me a long time to fall into that first experience. And I believe it was because there was just this like child version of me with these beliefs that was still holding on. So I remember having to consciously let go. And actually, I think I said let go out loud and I finally fell into it. So it's just so beautiful the way these, I look at it like, The universe has these plants that they've given us to remind us where we really came from when things get too crazy. And for me, when I was, I called it that night and I still call it being on the other side. When I was on the other side, that felt like home. And it was so clear to me that this was the illusion. But as soon as I came back, it was like, oh, all those stories that looked so silly in that state of mind feel so real again. And some people don't have access to the medicines that we're talking about. And so I'm curious, does it take something like ayahuasca to start finding those stories that are driving our lives? Or is there another way that you found? Because I mean, for me, I'm still finding stories. It's not like it just dissipated in that ayahuasca experience. It, It shone a light on them. But through my life, through living here, I'm creating new stories every single day that I'm trying not to become attached to. So how do you keep that awareness? Yeah, great question. And I do, I'm extremely grateful. And I know I'm incredibly lucky to have access to these medicines, you know, and not everyone does. And at the same time, you don't need these medicines. They're basically, if you're really, really off track, it's like to get you right back on track really quickly. It's almost like a cheat code to get you. So for me to keep a line in alignment, I love breath work. I talk about Wim Hof method in my book too. And that's a really easy, simple way just to get me kind of back on track. I do have a daily silent daily meditation practice that keeps me really aligned. And for me, yoga, just a, a morning yoga movement practice. It's really just these subtle reminders to get back in touch with myself. And on that note, I did want to make a note of where you said that medicine doesn't solve your problems for you. You're trying to get something to solve these problems for yourself. And I remember my last ayahuasca session just in March. And it was probably, this was my ninth ceremony, which is a little overkill at this point. And it's funny because I was dealing with like some grief and some internal problems in my life. And so I went like, oh, I'll go do ayahuasca and get the insight, you know. And so I break through and get to the other side. And Mother Ayahuasca was just very much like, what, you think you can just come here and I'm going to solve all your problems? <laughs> she was like, she was like, no. The medicine was like, no, you learn by doing. You have to go through this experience. The only way you can actually learn is by going through the experience. And so I didn't get many insights on my last ceremony because it was like, stop coming here. Stop coming to the medicine. We're not going to solve all your problems. You have all the tools. You have all the resources. It literally was like, Go back to your meditation practice, go back to your yoga practice, go back to your really clean eating, make sure you're getting eight hours of sleep, make sure you're staying hydrated, make sure you don't have anyone in your life that's stealing energy from you, right? And you'll be fine, right? But it doesn't mean you're not going to feel grief, doesn't mean you're not going to feel sadness, doesn't mean you're not going to feel frustrated, but you now have the tools to maneuver those experiences, right? And so that was a big takeaway. It was like, you're done go live life, go be human, stop looking for the shortcut. Right. I actually wrote a whole keynote speech 
And it was all about the cheat code. That's how I lived yeah. my life was looking for the cheat code. And I started with a story about video games when I was a kid because it was always just about like, how can I hack my way through this? Which I still do, but I do it in a different sure. way. <laughs> you know, like it's more about productivity when I'm trying to find the shorter way rather than skipping the lesson as it is. Right. And it's interesting to me because when I started to first do all of the self-help stuff, I was just like, well, this is the thing. And then this is the thing. Or like, okay, now a vegan diet's going to help me because I'm vegan. Well, actually, yeah. I, I reintroduced pasture-raised eggs <laughs> when I was pregnant. But so I call it vegan. But yeah, <laughs> and so it's like all of these different things like are supposed to be the thing. It sounds like none of it is then. But what I started to realize is that these are all tools. And when you're taking care of your car, it's not like you go in and you're like, oh, I thought it was the oil change, but now it's the brakes and now I need tires. And what is this? Like, that's what taking care of yourself is. And so if you need to make dietary changes, that's one step to keep your vessel right. running optimally. If you need to do breath work, that's another way for you to connect your mind and your body. And then this other thing is another way. And so all of these ways are different forms of maintenance to help keep yourself in tip-top shape so that you can even access your mind. Because if you're hangry, if I'm hangry, I can't think of anything but food and how much I want to yell at the people right. around me. <laughs> and right. so how am I supposed to find any deeper meaning when I'm in literal fight and flight mode? And so it's about finding that calm in your body, doing what you need to do to give yourself that freedom. And for some people that looks like just eating a solid breakfast. And for other people, that looks like a cold plunge and like 30 minutes of breath work. Like, what do right. you need? What helps you reach that space? So now that you've found these realizations, what do you do when you find yourself caught in a story or when you find yourself feeling depressed? Or what are your tools to kind of find that awareness without having to go seek Mother Ayahuasca? Very well said, by the way, about keeping your body in alignment, you know, and I think that's where it does start, right, is your physical health, your mental health, right? Get yourself in the best possible situation so you can attack your problems coming from a place of integrity and alignment. And I think that's absolutely huge. But for me, when I do get stuck, when I do feel frustrated, the first thing I do is I actually tell myself, I become aware of my situation, I pinpoint the emotion, right? And it's okay, let's say it's frustration. I'm frustrated. There's a problem I can't quite solve. I haven't figured out the answer, right? Whether it's my business. And so I'll notice, I'm like, okay, I notice I'm feeling frustrated and I'm okay feeling frustrated. First, I notice I'm not going to fix my emotion because if we, usually when we feel an emotion like sadness or grief or anxiety, we try and fix it. We want to fix the emotion. We want to fix the anxiety. We want to fix the frustration. What can I do so I don't feel this one emotion, right? Instead, it's like, okay, I notice I'm feeling anxiety about the situation, I'm okay feeling anxious, right? And then it's, okay, why do I think I'm feeling anxiety? Okay, there's this situation at work or a relationship that's not landing right, I don't have an answer for you, and just realize I will be okay. And I just start there by telling myself I will be okay, right? And that allows me to feel more calm, more relaxed. It kind of takes the weight of the problem off a little bit, even though I still feel anxious, but I'm okay feeling anxious and I'm not trying to solve the problem because if, if there's an issue at work or a relationship and I'm anxious and I want to solve the problem, what I'm really trying to solve is my own personal anxiety. And that's usually not the best thing to do for the relationship or to solve the problem. It's really just being selfish. I just don't want to feel anxious about it. I don't care what the result is as long as I don't feel anxious. So if I can be okay with my emotion and pinpoint it, okay, I'm feeling anxious. I'm okay feeling anxious. Now I can actually address 
the concern that will solve the concern, not just my anxiety. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it's really just telling myself I'm going to be okay, right? I'm okay feeling anxious. I'm okay feeling my feelings, right? And then address the problem from that in place of integrity because I think that will get to the true result of the problem rather than just subsiding my emotion. Right. I do that when I feel anxious. It's funny because I never identified with having anxiety until all of a sudden a couple Mm. years ago. I'm like, this is anxiety. And I think what was happening before is I was always running from it. So I wasn't okay Mm. feeling it. And so back in my 20s, I would go party or I would grab a drink or I would immerse myself in something else. So I wasn't feeling that anymore. And ironically, sometimes take drugs that would make me feel more anxious. But for some reason, I was like, well, I just took that. This is a good feeling. (laughs) So I'm like, but my heart's racing. It's literally all the same bodily sensations, but for some reason in this aspect, it's good. And then later on, it was like, well, let me go do yoga. And I still do that sometimes, especially when it's a lot or I need to pass it. But there's so much power in being willing to sit there and just experience it and remind myself, these feelings do not mean I'm going to die. Like, what is this feeling? Oh, it's my heart racing. And like just identifying all the key parts of it. Like I feel a tightness in my chest or I feel my face scrunching up and then kind of counteracting those taking a deep breath, breathing into my chest space, trying to like smile about something instead of being so serious and then going through it. And so like you said a little bit ago, you know, the only way out is through it. And so instead of trying to move, even just alter those emotions, which there still is a place for, for me to go on a run or to whatever, get myself into a different state. But I tend to do that more in depressive states. But sometimes just being willing, like, can I sit here and can I feel what's in this for me? Can I feel if there's any random realizations I have just like I would in a psychedelic ceremony. Not all the feelings I get are good. You know, I go through a purging phase and I go through like a, oh my God, terror. What am I going into right now? And then all of a sudden I'm on the other side and can I do that just with my own emotions that I was born with? And so I love all of those tips that you gave and for showing people a lift of the veil a little bit. I love that how you visualized it as kind of peeking behind the curtain because you can be the one that goes behind that curtain or you can also be the one that shares some of the things and brings it out for other people who don't yeah. want to go behind the curtain. So yeah. for listeners that are just resonating with this story and wanting to learn more about yours and some of the things that you learned and possibly even doing a ceremony themselves, finding that in their area or overseas. What is your advice for them and where can they connect with you? Yeah. So on that note, I'm not very woo-woo, even though I've done a lot of woo-woo, but I think you nailed it when you said, when you're ready, the plants will come and get you. You'll be called to it and you'll know. And I want to echo that as well, right? As much as I'm not woo-woo, I do believe that when you are ready, the plants will come and find you. So if you're interested in an ayahuasca ceremony or a medicine ceremony, there's incredible retreat centers outside of the U.S. where it is legal. And you'll know when you're ready and you'll be called to it. And so I want to point you in that direction. As far as my work going out, I have a brand called The Daily Shifts, which is an app with daily habits. We, we have you know gratitude practice, breathing exercises, goal setting, as well as a lot of other healthy habits for your daily reminders, The Daily Shifts. Um, I have an online course. I do one-on-one client work as well. But more importantly, the most exciting piece is my book. It's coming out. And you can find that on Amazon. It's Holy Shit, We're Alive. You can pick that up on Amazon today. And on Instagram, you can find me at Doug underscore Cartwright. I'm not an Instagram famous guy. I'm a normal dude. So I answer my DMs. So if you have a question or insight or something resonated with you or you loved my book and would love to tell me, please shoot me a DM. I respond to every single DM. 
All of the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 195. Your challenge for this week is to get a little bit of clarity. Yes, today we talked a lot about psychedelics. That's just one path to uncovering more about ourselves. But we also talked about a lot of the other things that we've tried, and each one added a little layer of perspective. It's so important to first be clear on where you're starting or what it is that you're trying to heal. And I'll be honest, sometimes that clarity comes while we're in the midst of doing the work. So you might find that your first step is to just start doing the work before you can uncover it. But set the intention that you're going to get clear on the stories that you need to transform. What are those lemons that life threw you? We often think it's the lemons that are the problem, but in reality, it's the beliefs that we've built up around the lemons. (laughs) Something gets thrown at you in life and it creates a belief about yourself that starts to drive your behavior subconsciously. That's what it did for me. That's what it did for him. We both believed we were not worthy and so we built ourselves up on the outside. Or it could be something different. Maybe for you, it's money is the root of all evil, which is why you have such a hard time earning money. Or maybe it's, I can only rely on myself. And so you have a hard time forming relationships. What is that story? Where did it come from? Get clear on that first, because when the student is ready, the master will appear. Maybe for you, that will be a psychedelic ceremony, or maybe it will be a retreat or a new book. Whatever that is, first, you have to do the work, show the universe that you're ready for the next lesson. And let me know how it goes. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. Thank you for all of you who have left five-star reviews. If you love the show and you get value from it, that's an awesome way to give back. Just go to Apple Podcasts, find Mind Love, scroll down until you see a link that says write a review, which should be right above all the other reviews. Another amazing way to support the show is by joining Mind Love Premium. You can do that at mindlove.com premium, or you can now do it right in the Apple Podcasts app. There are some added benefits if you do it on my site though, so you decide, but this way it's accessible in a number of different ways. That's it for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.